Hey open, welcome to the Temple of Blair. I'm not going to apologize for the fan in the background because the planet is on fucking fire and this country is still enduring some sort of divine anger and it's still bloody boiling. And furthermore, I'm surrounded by lawyers. Shortly after speaking with Marcus Turner for the second time, I spoke with Ray Garcia. Ray was head of business affairs at Roadrun Records on the United States side from the late 90s over to about the mid 2010s and as such he has a wealth of experience from the other side of the pond which has opened my eyes to a number of fresh rabbit holes to dive down towards the end of this conversation uh, ray and i kind of cut it loose a bit and get a bit informal ray then starts dishing out stories left right and center and it's edited as such so it might seem like we're jumping from one bit to the other it's because we are it's because that's exactly what's happening um but that's what you're here for anyway. One, two, fuck it up. You know, I was a Roadrunner fan before I was there. So, you know, my wife always tells me, you've had your dream job, you know. And I say, yeah, you know, but I, I still have a while to go before I can retire. It'd be nice to <laughs> enjoy something else. But yeah, I mean, it was the perfect job. I mean, I wanted to work at a record company forever. You know, I went to law school. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to work for, you know, for a record company as a lawyer. I then get to work with Roadrunner. You know, we, it's the right place, right time, because they just, you know, the the, the label just skyrocketed and with, with different successes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a million different things that make it a special place, you know, but there was a lot of consistency and longevity uh, with a lot of the people there. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of us, uh, whether you were in your 20s or your early 30s, you were kind of growing up in the music business in this setting um, with tremendous leadership, you know, and then having the success. I mean, when you're successful, I mean, everything's a party, you know? So uh, it's not that it was easy all the time, but I mean, it was just a great place to be, you know, at a a perfect place in time. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's a very special place. And I, you know, I I realized like, you know, there there will never be another place like that, that I will work at. Uh, But, you know, we go on to other things um, Mm. and, you know, and I, now I find myself in private practice where I represent, uh, I still work with some, some of the Roadrunner folks. Uh, I mean, uh, one of my clients is Mascot. So I deal with Ed Van Zeel and Ron Berman all the time. And we have some of the same bands and I've done some work for Monty at different points in time. Mm. Um, you know, and, uh, and then I have private clients as well. And I mean, I'm lucky enough now that I, I represent the Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl and the Nirvana State. And, uh, you know, we just started representing Soundgarden a year ago, you know, wow. the three remaining members. Mm-hmm. And we have Beck and Jimmy World. And, you know, it's an exciting time for me in that respect. Um, but I'll tell you, it was funny. One of the first things I, I talked about when I speak to the people who are managing Dave Grohl is Probot. Because that was my connection to them. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to make some sort of connection. Um, but, you know, because he had done the you know, different covers. And I think Max Cavalera might have been on the record. Yeah. And I, I know he did like King Diamond covers. And it was, uh, you know, just a fun project. And uh, it's been a, you know, it was a, not the biggest connection to that world. But it was something to hang my hat on uh, and say, it's hey, guys, remember me? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's so, easier than saying I like the color and, you know, the <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, but it's funny, you know, you've had some people who left and came back to Roadrunner. Yeah. And I may be the only person who interviewed for a job and was then hired six years later. Um, Because I I originally came out of law school, 
Um, I worked at a small firm for a while and I, you know, I was there for about a year and you know, I was like, well, I want to do entertainment, you know, mm-hmm. I want to work in the music biz. So I decided I was going to leave and I basically sent out resumes to anybody in the music business to try and get in there. Um, and then I wound up seeing, I think there was even an ad, uh, maybe in Billboard, uh, but anyway, I wound up having an interview with Doug Keough, um, and it went great, but I was right out of law school, and they were looking for somebody with some more experience, um, and they wound up hiring somebody else. And then, you know, as life takes you through these twists and turns, um, I would run into Doug, or we'd speak, you know, like every six months or, or so, that something would pop up to connect mm-hmm. you. Uh, and then out of the blue, it was like, hey, you know what? Um, we might want to talk again because, you know, it might work this time. Uh, And then I, you know, I called him up and, you know, things went great. Then he basically said, you want to start tomorrow? And I said, wow. um, Yeah. (laughs) And then uh, I I do remember he said that, um, you know, you you have to meet Case though. And I said, okay. So Case was going to be in town in a week or so. And um, I went out to coffee with Case Mm -hmm. and, you know, he asked me some questions and, you know, you know, why did I want to work at a record company? And why didn't I just want to work at a law firm? And, you know, and I told him I want to be part of something that grew, you know, and, and you know, he seemed to like the answers. Um, and uh, I do remember, though, I had to pay for the coffee. And I was saying, like, Jesus, man, this guy, why am I paying for the coffee at the interview? Like, this is great. Um, but uh, Case would travel light. Uh, and he would not, uh, you know, there's no reason for me carrying a ton of money around, you know. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he would sometimes go to the finance department. And there was like a case slush fund, I think, where he would be given some, some uh, a stipend. Um, but, you know, it was on me that time uh, and it worked out well. Um, so that's how that was my introduction. I was basically told that I would have a uh, I would not be full time uh, until three months later, because then a new fiscal year was starting and they could bring me onto the books. Um, so I had a little probationary period there for about what year months. are we in for this? Uh, I think it's, um, 99 or right. is it 98? It was right after Slipknot, uh, had done Ozfest. It was that September. Right. So that so. should, that should be 99, I think. So yeah. You're so coming in just before it's like the, the Acme bomb is over here and the fuse is over there and you're just walking in as it's making its way out. That's kind of where we are. Yeah. All of a sudden, uh, you know, they were taking off, um, and, you know, it was the first time I had worked at a record company. So, you know, all of this was new and exciting, you know, and, um, but they, you know, they, they, they took off, you know, we then wound up switching offices and moving to the 902 Broadway location. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, then within little time, you know, Nickelback, you know, blows up and uh, yeah. everything changed uh, in all sorts of different ways. So let's, let's so. just uh, dial back a little bit because, the two your two entry points are like really staggering because you interviewed a time prior to I, the the just to be clear like the milestones I've got in my head are like my own sort of like sordid narration of how this whole story unfolds right so you're going in before typo negatives gold which is ninety five which is the year that Roadrunner becomes a viable entity on like the industry's eye guys up until that point they're just like a, a metal indie label there's plenty yeah of, like, it was it was probably even earlier i think it was probably like 93 or so yeah i mean i mean okay. i mean you're coming in before that milestone year right so, right sorry yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so we're, we're at the point where you, you're interviewing at what is effectively an indie label and then you get the job when it's a, a tried and tested um 
uh, enterprise which is expanding rapidly, or at least how do I how do I phrase this in, in a, an appropriate way? It's attempting different things, and are very interesting things which a metal indie has no right to do. Um, <laughs> but some things worked and some things didn't as these things play out. So what's your perception when you went in? Because um, you said you were a Roadrunner fan from the get-go. Was this the case in 93? Uh, yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I was always a hard rock fan growing up in the seventies and a metal fan. And, you know, the new wave of British heavy metal changed my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Kerrang became my Bible, you know, uh, we'd run to the import stores every Friday night when it would come out. Um, and so Roadrunner was a part of the vocabulary, you know, uh, right. and okay. it was really exciting to be, uh, you know, just, just being a part of it. Um, it was all new, you know, we were still doing different things, I guess, at that time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Derek Shulman was the president at that time. And, um, you know, he was, I think, I, I, don't, I guess his goal was to bring the label into a more commercial sphere. And um, there were certain artists they were trying that were less heavy. Um, mm. And we had, you know, even some bands, you know, there were some bands that were a little out there. But, um, yeah, I remember these younger bands. I mean, we had like the Toilet Boys was a band that, you know, I don't, we never released their record. Um <laughs> <laughs> and uh uh but they were a very uh new york punky you know sure. kind of band um and uh you know it's perhaps they were doomed uh at one point when i believe they brought in the keyboard player from bon jovi to produce the record which <laughs> seemed to be out of left field um a little bit yeah uh but uh yeah like i said there was there was different things being attempted and i was just happy to be there you know yeah Um, yeah and it was like you know i didn't you know i didn't feel that we necessarily needed to remain a death metal label forever um so it was uh you know it was just that was like well i guess this is what they do i guess they try different stuff here you know yeah um in in trying to set the scene on that particular movement within the label you mentioned Derek shulman Derek Shulman, to me, is a bit of an, an enigmatic character. So I know he was in General Giant, which is like a Scottish folk, and and I don't know much more about him other than he did saw Palais in the music industry in a very senior level for a, a number of years. Um, it might have even been Mark Abramson who mentioned, yes, Derek Shulman was brought in as president to bring some sort of commercial viability. Commercial viability. I use these, I use these phrases all the time to try and crossover into a more mainstream kind of market can you tell what can you tell me about Derek how was he as a person what were his credentials what was what was his management style because I mean it's worth mentioning as well like UK and US disparities in terms of corporate vocabulary a president in this context is someone who's effectively doing the admin on behalf of the CEO right well, I think that he, uh, I think the main reason he was brought in, and it might, you know, it might have had something to do with the musical direction as well. But, you know, Case never wanted to be in the spotlight, you know, and that's yeah. why you never saw interviews with him. He didn't go to industry events. And I think that he wanted somebody to take on that role, you know. And so then I, I'm not sure how Derek Schulman was introduced to him, mm. but he came along and Derek Oliver was an A&R guy who worked with him, also came along. It was, you know, the two Derricks had come into Roadrunner at the same time. Um, And Derek Oliver was more of a melodic, uh, you know, metal fan. And I think that that was also part of perhaps trying to branch off into something more commercial. Mm -hmm. But I think it was really to have a spokesperson for the company that wouldn't have to be Case, you know. Right. Um, But I didn't, you know, I didn't overlap with Derek for long. 
you know, because again, when I was first brought in, you know, those first three months at the old office, um, it was a very odd setup. Uh, it was like a bit of a, a maze. So there was a front room where Case and Derek were at. There was like a, a, a radio publicity room where there were six or five people, you know, on the phones all the time. Um, and then there was a hallway. <laughs> and then you wound up in this bigger room with these little alcoves and there was finance, graphic design. You know, Doug Keogh was in one area. BA kind of took over a little backspace. Stefan Coaster was further back doing international. Um, you know, IT people were there as well. Um, so I didn't see Derek much, you oh, know. Yeah. Uh, and at that point in time, I was not in a real position of, you know, any kind of responsibility. I mean, I was yeah. more of, you know, okay, you're the BA guy, you're going to do the legal work, you know, and a lot of it was really taking care of business that hadn't been done for a while. Um, yeah. and, and then I think, you know, when we made the move, I don't remember when Derek exited, but at some point soon after, you know, he he left the company. So mm -hmm. I, I, there's not much that I have to to really tell about him because I wasn't I wasn't involved the same way. You know, later on in my career, I was in the management meetings with different department heads and and case, um, and then I would also be have my own meeting. I had like the BA meeting, which I would run. And that had Case um, at the time, Jonas, who was the president. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Doug was there as well. Uh, I'm not sure if the head of head of ANR, Dave Rath, might have been in the meeting at that time. Yeah. Uh, Monty was in there for a while as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that's when I had more responsibility, and, and I was helping, kind of, you know, in some ways, write the narrative of yeah. what we were doing. Um, so I have much better, you know, I have much more to say about the people at that time frame than, than prior to that. You know, no, it's fine. I'll, I'll just sort of like elaborate. I mean, when you walk into someone's house, right, and you see a book on the shelf and it's like a biography of Winston Churchill, the impression you get as a visitor to that house is like this guy had the idea that he was going to read a book on Churchill. Whether he read the book or not is beside the point. So this is why I stress the importance of like these individuals that try and form this time that the, the layer was expanding in this crazy way. Because somewhere down the line, someone thought Derek Shulman was the man for the job, or at least to be the face of the, the operations. And I, right. I, I think while we're in that kind of weird Wild West zone in the late 90s, it would, it would really help me to understand the reasoning behind those people. That's why I kind of stress certain individuals over like long period of time until I really crack those notes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, when he came again, when he was there, I, I, I was under the impression that Derek Oliver came along with him. I don't know if it, I don't know that they were joined at the hip per se, mm. but they seemed to come in at the same time. And I know that there were certain, you know, there were bands that, uh, you know, that didn't make it out of that run. Um, but there was a band called Tam, uh, that was signed at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, Derek Oliver also signed. Oh God, what was the name of the band? I can't remember now. Uh, but you know, we had the Step Kings. Was actually Ron Berman signing. Yeah. Um, and then one of the band members went on to be part of Crush Management, which is one of the biggest management companies you know around. Um, but yeah, it seemed that they were trying to. They, they were bringing in more, uh, you know, rock music. You know, more uh, radio friendly stuff. And you know, Derek had the rep for you know having been part of bringing Bon Jovi to the masses. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine that that was part of the, you know, part of the... Yeah, it must have been. I need to look at, I need to look at the Derek's CVs of it, like closer to sort of maybe that's where it, maybe that's where the answer lies. But there's other people in, in there as well, like Dave Lonko. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. 
and the people but Dave I, was I, around for a while. I mean, obviously, you know, and and helped change the label in such a tremendous way. Exactly. Know? When you think of like that, I mean, let's talk '97. We've got uh, I think Dave Lonko was in in that sort of period. Yeah, we have uh, Mike Gitter and Ron Berman, and their impact is just. I mean, from an A&R perspective, it's really easy to sort of like it's really easy to compare. It's really easy because you can just go Nickelback, Killswitch Engage. Those are two musical arcs and legacies which which really define what the label is about. And then right. I try and take a step back, up the step beyond the A and R on the front end, and start start thinking about the back office stuff. But yeah, no, no, it's it's, it's cool. I'll look into that a little bit closer. Um, so <laughs> ninety nine, the arcade acquisition is going on. In fact, let's, let's, let's actually make this a little even less, less formal. Let's make it less histogramical, I guess. Um, what is your day-to-day then? Are you straight in with the deals? You said you were doing some work that hadn't been done in a while. Was there some sort of like a catalog that needed acquiring or something? Well, there seemed to be a backlog of um, work. A lot of it was licenses. I mean, I distinctly remember that a typo negative song was used in the Howard Stern movie, Private Parts. <laughs> And it had never been, the license was never done. And I think that probably Pete, I don't think it was Josh, but it was Pete Steele would always say, what's going on? Where's our statements? Why are we hearing anything about this? And it's just because the deal was never papered. So they weren't going to pay any royalties until that happened. Mm. And I remember, you know, finally, uh, this is really getting into the weeds, but I remember I'm looking into this file. And, I, know, I love getting into the weeds. You'll learn this. I fucking love it. <laughs> well, at the major labels, you know, it's a revolving door, right? So I'm dealing with, you know, Mr. X is the BA person handling this deal. Okay, I call up. He's not there anymore. Nobody remembers what went on. And I think that at the end, there was a dispute over who was going to pay Rick Rubin royalties, if I'm not mistaken, because he produced the track. It was okay. something crazy like that. So then I wind up doing, I'm working on some other projects and I call a different major label. And Mr. X is at the label. Oh. So I said, hey, I was just looking at the private parts deal. (laughs) And you wouldn't happen to remember what happened here, would you? And then he told me what his recollection of it was. And it had to do with these, you know, producer payments that weren't made. And nobody was, nobody knew who was going to be responsible. So we finally got the deal done. So I I did get that one done. One, one done. (laughs) And as Doug would say, okay, you've earned your pay this week. You know, like you've earned your pay today. You've done, you know, you've accomplished something. Um, but I was doing, taking care of things like that. Um, I think when we moved to 902 Broadway, I was more involved in, in the deals. I think it was more a case of here's a deal memo, do a contract, you know? Um, I don't think I was that involved necessarily before the deals got to that point. Um, but of course that was going to come with time and part of it, you know, learning how Roadrunner did business, um, Mm. And, you know, at some point then, you know, Doug would always do these P&L reports for the deals. Um, and then he just said, well, you can do them. And he gave me the form. <laughs> and it was, you know, a lot of plug and play with the numbers. But it got to the point where basically there'd be, you know, the A&R meetings would take almost all day sometimes. You know, Case would be in there with the A&R guys for four hours at least, it seemed, if not longer. And... Um, once that meeting was over, there was a mad dash to my desk or, or I'd get emails because we got to get this offer out now, you know, and I would get a rundown. And at that point, there were times where some of the terms were, uh, you know, more defined, especially the money. Um, but then it got to the point where it's like, OK, Ray, here's like the range that we're looking at. 
and they would give me the information as to what projected sales might be, how much okay. is the marketing going to be, you know, two videos, no video, you know, what are we doing here? What's tour support? And then, you know, we punch it into this report and then it had to be within an acceptable range. Um, and then we would be like, okay, at this money, the deal makes sense. At this, at this level, we're going to break even. Mm-hmm. At this level, we're going to lose money. So then, you know, we would go out with an offer somewhere in the middle there uh, that would give us room to maneuver. Uh, but, you know, that's one thing that that process uh, showed me uh, was that, you know, Case was very, he was very serious about the business. And, mm-hmm. and this is something that I didn't necessarily realize at the time, but I picked up from your, your other interviews or discussions was that, you know, he was this experienced record label guy. So, you know, Roadrunner was so much more professional than any indie I'd ever been with, but but the ones I was with before then were typically a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it, he wanted things to be done in a proper way. So, you know, I had to have a deal memo that had to be signed off by him and by the A&R guy. Uh, and I couldn't do a deal without that, you know. Um, and I think that those were the types of things that I later saw, you know, whenever we, when we sold the company, um, you know, the, uh, the purchaser would be saying, I can't believe how organized you guys are. Like, this is like no other indie we've ever seen before, you mm-hmm. know, and that was important to case, you know, and uh, I, I remember when, you know, we would try something new, like he wanted to do movie soundtracks. So he's like, okay, Ray, have you ever done movie soundtrack? No. <laughs> he's like, okay, well, we're going to hire somebody. So go find a lawyer. And then, you know, ride shotgun, learn everything you can, and then you'll do the next one. So that's what we right. did, you know, but he was all about that. And then I remember another point in time, after a few years, he wanted me to find an attorney to look over our contracts and make sure they were state of the art, you know, state of um, the art. Yeah. Like he always, you know, he did not want us to have a disadvantage on that front. Like we were going to be run like, you know, a professional company. Okay. Okay, I guess we're also like in a we're in a pre three sixty deal world, although Case is orchestrating three sixty deals. Yeah, to to some extent. I mean, he he did always exactly. want he did want to find a way to get uh, a piece of the touring, right? Um, and that's something that we never had beforehand because nobody did that, you know. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny because I've been in watching some of the the other uh, episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the discussions with the bands and how harsh the deals were, mm-hmm. these were indie deals, you know, like I, at this point in time, I have clients who entered into deals with other labels at that time. Mm-hmm. And those deals were a hundred times worse than yeah. anything I ever saw a roadrunner put out. You know, it was an indie deal. You, you know, you were a band that was not attracting a major label yeah. and it was going to be low money. It was going to be low royalties. And if they could get your publishing, they try and get your publishing. And, you know, Roadrunner was was just playing ball the way everybody else was, to be honest with you. The reason I focus on the deals is because I know it's not as simple as it looks. I know it's not fat blog behind a desk with a cigar. It's It can't be as simple as that because that's not how an incentive structure in, on, on planet Earth works. Right. <laughs> and slowly developing, like, the, the, the vision, if you will, of, like, how this is going to be explained. And it's... One of the one of the great things that I was that was explained to me recently was, um, and this is the problem with this podcast. I can't remember who tells me these things, so I can't credit the right people with it. Well, I might yeah. remember. Go ahead. Go right. So, five grand deal doesn't sound great, but then you think there's a five grand investment in the band for the advance, but there's also about five hundred grand investment across the planet for an infrastructure, which is something that no other indie label can offer. 
worldwide right. coverage, at least to some extent, because I know there was like a there's a threshold a band would pass before you know that 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 could be taken advantage of. But there's that is what you say about the these are bands that aren't attracting any major interest. There's a whole dynamic at play as to why these deals were more advantageous than disadvantageous. And I think it's easy right. to punch up at Roadrunner um, because it's that it's punching up because Roadrunner was, was successful. You don't hear anyone complaining about any other major deals or in, uh, other indie deals because it's the context is completely different. It's easy to shit on Roadrunner for that deal because they were so successful. And I think it's, right. it's so the social dynamic there which makes it easy to punch up to. But, right, but you would you would also have situations where because it was Roadrunner, you know, like you said, they knew that they they would want to get more money. Yeah, they would want to get a bigger advance or a higher royalty. And at times, you know, they would wind up there. There, look, there were times where we'd sign a band, um, and then we'd wind up having to part ways with them. Right? It just wasn't working out, and it was like, mm. okay, we're not going to pick up the option. Yeah. Uh, or we'd go to the band and say, "Do you want to renegotiate your deal down?" Nobody wants to renegotiate their deal down. You know, mm. and not not only do they not want to take a lesser deal, but you know, it's like you often hear with you know with professional athletes, you know, they want the respect and respect comes with money. And if you yeah. tell somebody you're worth less, they're not going to take kindly to that. Yeah. But these bands would invariably take lesser deals somewhere else. But yeah. That's just the way, that's the way it worked. You know, it's like, they wouldn't be with, they wouldn't stay with us, you know, whether it was to save face or, or they thought they could do better, they'd go elsewhere and then they'd wind up getting a lesser deal, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, a lot of labels that were not as successful as Roadrunner, you know, would, would obviously do even, you know, would do lesser deals and, uh, you know, more grabby deals even than Roadrunner was doing at certain times. You, know? I, so you can even say, all oh, right, if that band's been turned away from, if Roadrunner can't work that band, then they can't be worth as much as what they think they're worth. Therefore, the lesser deal is the better option. I, well, I'm, right. speaking from, I'm speaking from rival labels perspective, from a, right. an outgoing artist. But yeah, I think the economics of it are worth completely hashing out and sort of trying to understand clearer because the, the objective in that in, in, in that building was to propagate more metal. That was what was the objective. There was a business dynamic to it, and there was a business infrastructure to it, but that's just the way that's that's the way we've developed it for the last what thousand years. So yeah, what hey, look, I, I think that it's it, it would be too um, short sighted of me to just say that things weren't planned out as much as they were but i think that there's you know one thing i've noticed like there's a lot of things that there's a process you know yeah. and it's like that's a this trust the process is something you hear in a lot of professional sports teams in the u.s now right yeah. um about how they improve and it's like okay if you sign the right bands if you don't overspend you know if you you know you you, you cross your t's and dot your i's you, you process there will be successes that come of that mm -hmm. um and your business will continue to, you know, to flow. Right. Mm. Um, and I think that that's part of it too. Like, I don't know, like I, I, I'm sure there were times where people came into the company, whether it be a new A&R person with a new strategy or a new set of artists that they were eyeing. I don't know that the plan was necessarily ever to do that, but at that point in time, this person showed up and had a compelling story yeah. and was like, you know, what? this is going to fit into our plan. Yeah. Let's do this. Mm. You know, and that's how some things happen. You know, like, I don't know that Case ever wanted to have a hardcore part of the label when he brought Howie Abrams in, but Howie Abrams came into his life with something that seemed to make sense at that point in time. Yeah. 
And so he came on board, you know, and then we signed those bands that, that he, you know, that he brought to the table, but it could have been somebody else and it could have been a different type of music, you yeah. know? So I don't know that the, I, I don't know if it's a master plan, you know, I think there's a framework for a business yeah. and there's certainly goals that are set along the way, but then it's like, you know, the wheels are in motion, you know, yeah. and, uh, and things come about when you least expect them. You know, I'm sure nobody thought Slipknot was going to do what it did, yeah. you know, whatever, three months out. You know, hmm. or or you know any number of other bands, and I'm sure there's bands that we thought were going to blow up a lot quicker that either didn't or never happened. Yeah, yeah. I think there's also the, there's an economic dynamic I've been I've been wrestling on, and maybe I could pry for some thoughts on this. But there is a cash flow consideration to be made when we think about these deals and like the 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 typical the typical deal that was that happened at that time. And that's simply my example. Typically, about 1985, when Case has about between 15 and 20 acts direct signings. The, the staple deal being the five, the, the, the five grand. The office is in the middle of Amsterdam. We've just invested 75,000 dollars or European equivalent or whatever it is on effectively gambles because we don't know if we're going to make a return. We have an educated right. guess based on the last five years of heavy metal. Um, and a now emerging indie scene, but there's really a gamble. So that's 75,000 that could be down the drain. That's a lot of money, especially in 1985. And I imagine that position is still, I mean, we know Roadrunner is a, prop- a profitable company, especially you know as we enter into the 2000s and the Slumdog era. There's still a big chunk. If we take the, the pie chart of like the Roadrunner treasury, whatever the, the vault which Doug Keogh sits in front of, and there must be like a big chunk of that, maybe even like 25. I'm not, I'm not going to throw a number. I don't fucking know. There must be a large, a non-negligible number that's a portion of that treasury, which is just could be pissing the wind. It could be a complete gamble. And I think is, is that, am I, am, I, am I close to something here? Is that a consideration, well, the fact that it, there is a cash flow concern? Yeah, but I mean, I think that you've got, again, an experienced businessman in case who was well-schooled in the record business. And, you know, I think he understood what was going to be involved in taking on this task of starting a record company and growing it, you know? So I think that, you know, if anything, I think they might be more, um, you know, they were investments in each band, you know? And I don't think, I don't think anything ever rises to the level of a gamble because I think there was more thought put into it than that. And I know you're not saying it to be, you know, I get it. Um, But I think that, you know, they, they, they thought that if they did things a certain way, there would be a result Mm -hmm. and at least they wouldn't lose their shirts, you know? Yeah. Um, Sure. I'll tell you, it was funny one time and um, I may segue and you can reel me back in if you want. I'm about about Uh, to go on another different tangent after this this bit. (laughs) That's not been on the question. So, yeah. So here's the thing. So, you know, again, I think that there's, Different people had different relationships with Case, right? Uh, and uh, but he was a super interesting guy, you know. And and one of the things that I loved about working there was that, you know, I I mean, again, brilliant businessman, you know. And then I was lucky that at one point, a few years in, I remember we were doing a deal, and I went back out with a counter proposal, and I don't know what I what I wound up including it was either more money than he wanted to spend somewhere yeah. or he wanted he was okay to spend more and somebody else had said nah don't do that uh and at that point he said ray from now on you only deal with me 
and I and I was like, I was happy as you know. <laughs> I was like, great, I get to deal with cases, awesome. So you know, then it was direct phone calls, direct conversations. Like every deal went through him, and that's where I got like my master's degree and you know how to do business. You know, um, it was a funny story. One time I, I called him up, and I thought I was going to get him in Holland and ask him about a deal, and instead he tells me that he's in Japan. And I realized that it's probably four o'clock in the morning there and I've just wow. woken him up and I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm so sorry, Case. And he's like, no, no, I'm just going to wake up soon anyway to go run. He's like, well, what do you have? And like, he was on all the time, you know, like if there was, he was there. If you had a question and it was a real business question and you weren't wasting his time, he was more than happy to answer it at any point in time. And, um, you know, I think that, and, and let me know if you want me to, I, I'd like to tell you a little more about him from what I know. Uh, by all means. I don't know, I don't know means. where else this will come from. I mean, obviously, Monty would tell the full story. You know, Doug Keogh was there for almost 25 years. Um, you know, Jonas Naxon was there for a long time dealing with Case directly. Uh, but, you know, Case was very competitive. And we used to have these Roadrunner conventions where we would have people come in from the other offices, right? Typically marketing people, A&R people, the head of the office. And we'd introduce like that year's you know, offerings, the A&R guys would go up there and, uh, you know, we would discuss different types of marketing ideas, mm -hmm. uh, all these things would be going on, but there was always some, uh, you know, a company bonding type experience. And so, uh, at one point we were somewhere in Pennsylvania, you know, it's some, some forest resort and, uh, paintball was going to be the event, right. And it's raining and it's miserable and we're all in these fatigues and sloshing through the mud with these paintball guns and case is on his belly, you know, like a soldier because he's going to win. And he was going there and he was going to like sneak attack somebody or something, you know, and another time there was some kind of scavenger hunt that I remember and something had to do with like women's clothing. And I, I wasn't there to see it, but people like, Oh yeah, Case was walking through the lobby in a woman's dress and a big floppy hat, and it was part of the scavenger hunt. And it was <laughs> so. Wow. You know, and then I I'll give you one more. Uh, we uh, at one point we had a bowling tournament in New York, right? <laughs> and the teams were picked, and, and I'm, I'm sure they there might have been some skewing of the talent, you know. So Case's team had some talent, and. Uh, <laughs> Jonas Naxon, the president, had some talent. I can't, I can't say for sure. I mean, I only bowled probably like once a year or every two years, right? But I knew how to throw a ball, but, you know, I, no. I consider myself any good. So I don't know if it was just because I was on Case's team, but I was like the best bowler in the world that day. And, like, we crushed it. You know, we won. And before that, we had gotten Christmas Sutka. He got, we bought these white T-shirts, him and Michelle Van Arendonk were on the team. Uh, and Aliyah Hios was also on the team. I don't want to leave him out. And they got black magic markers and they wrote Cases Weasels. And that was the name of our team. <laughs> and so we win this tournament. And, you know, like next time I go to Cases' office, he never had a gold record on his wall. No artwork, no glory, no trophies. But there's this framed Cases Weasels t shirt <laughs> with a picture of us. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> I think from now on, I'm going to be golden for a while here because, like, I'm on that little that little picture <laughs> on his wall. And that, you know, that showed his competitive spirit. And every time, 
you know, Jonas would come into his office. I'm sure he'd remind him uh, <laughs> that he lost. Uh, but to be fair, Jonas's team won the next year and it was very disappointing. Uh, <laughs> but that gives you some insight into case. You know, he was he was driven. Uh, he enjoyed but he enjoyed having fun with the, you know, with his coworkers too. And the people who worked for him, I should say, you know, Um, even a lot of other people who didn't deal with him as much would be very guarded and nervous even, you know, I mean, I remember we went out to sushi before the bowling tournament and myself and I think Dave Rath were the only people who were speaking, you know, Mm -hmm. and then somebody told me, well, yeah, nobody else has, you know, nobody speaks, you know, like they don't have a direct line to him. Yeah. So you can't expect them to just, you know, be all shits and giggles during dinner. You know, it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a different thing for them. but yeah, I just I wanted to mention that kind of stuff because I thought it would be. A, you know, it, 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 it helps illustrate an angle, which is it speaks to case, it speaks to management in general, it speaks to um, anyone in the working world can relate to this. Which is case gives a massive fuck about his employees or his colleagues or however you want to structure the hierarchy. Um, he's a big on development. A lot of people yep. who, a lot yep. of people, all of the hires. I mean, you said earlier in this conversation, these are all like 20 somethings, 30 somethings. This is a rabble of fucking kids in the middle yep. of the music industry, in a, in a burgeoning kind of blossoming um, scene. So, and he's there basically guiding everyone, not necessarily guiding by the hand, but he's dropping people in situations where they're going to learn a lot. And the, the trajectory and the outcome of that attitude and those stories like yours are things like you're now working with Foo Fighters, Monty's now heading up Nuclear Blast in the USA, um, Michelle Kerr is, is heading up her own company, which represents like the vast majority of the metal industry. The cross-pollination of Roadrunner after its, um, I'll call it perceived demise, it, but after the Red Wedding in 2012, it speaks volumes as to how Case incubated that talent and we're all reaping the rewards of it these days. Yeah, there's even more than, uh, you know, I don't know if, do you know who Rose Slanik is? So um, Rose, she ran our Canadian office. And now she's a GM at 11.7 Music. So, you know, I, I, I always feel like if I ever, if I ever get in trouble, I have a lot of contacts in high places now because of Roadrunner. <laughs> <laughs> she used to work for, um, I think it was Attic, was our distributor or licensee in Canada for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at one point, um, Case realized that it would be a good idea to start a Canadian company. And yeah. in part, you know, the Canadian acts would get different grants and, 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 and trust the fund monies uh, to do videos, to record albums. Some of those are loans. Some of them were just grant monies given to them. Mm-hmm. And to take advantage of them, you had to be either a Canadian band or, or I believe have a Canadian producer or Canadian ownership. Um, so that was at one point it was, okay, we're going to start Roadrunner Canada. Uh, right. And then we, we tabbed Rose as the person we wanted to head up that office. And, you know, she accepted um, and was with us for a long time there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. I just hadn't, hadn't, I didn't have a name of the Canada um, from, from the Canada, the Canadian office. So I'm definitely going to pursue that, which usually involves me just finding out where they work now and then knocking on the front door and asking questions. <laughs> but it not only is like, not only are those stories, about those leadership not only that, are they fun but they're, they're actually critically important to this whole narrative critically important but let's take a massive step back because you mentioned something earlier which really intrigued me um which was we want to do we want to do soundtracks we want to do ost for films right so there's different products 
there's 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 metal as a product cycle there's albums and there's live albums there's things like that but sometimes there's original soundtracks and sometimes there's compilation cds and there's two particular ones which if i let's call it three there's three ones which are typically regarded in conversation say in monty's facebook posts in correspondence with um other people where there's these certain things that people give a massive shit about one of them is the mtv headbangers ball compilation that is sure. regarded as like a big achievement for Roadrunner. The Freddy versus Jason soundtrack. Right. Okay. And last but not least, Spider-Man. Yes. So my question um, is, how do these deals and how do these arrangements differ from the, the normal day-to-day product cycle of a record label? Well, look, on the, the MTV records, we're going to be compilations capturing a moment in time, you know, the, the most popular music available at the time, right, in our world, right, in the heavy metal or hard rock world. And, um, you know, because we didn't want to just do the same old thing, you know, typically our records had to be two CDs, mm-hmm. and we'd have a second CD with a lot of baby bands or developing bands, right? Um is this is this standard practice? Is this Roadrunner standard practice? And is to be picked for MTV's Headbangers Ball as a label? Is that like, is that like an, a, a a point of prestige? Well, I think that what happened was there's, you know, I'm not sure where the idea came from, right? Mm-hmm. But obviously, at that time, you know, we're in with MTV. We're trying to get our videos on MTV, you know, um, and there's relationships that are built up. And then, you know, I'm not sure who had the idea, but there was the idea to do this MTV Headbangers Ball compilation, you know, and I think that, you know, I mean, metal was exploding, you know, which was good and bad. Uh Uh, You know, I I think as far as, you know, once once the majors got involved, you know, then it became a a much more high stakes game. Yep. Um, You know, the idea of getting a band's publishing was going out the door unless, you know, it was uh, unless the deal was 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 made relevant, you know, because you'd have a major publisher mm-hmm. paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for the publishing. So they, no band would give it up if they didn't have to. Yeah. Right. Um, so we, we, MTV believes that we're the right partner for this, right? Nobody thinks that, you know, somebody can do a job with MTV style metal uh, and reach that audience better than Roadrunner, you know? And we're like, okay, great. Let's, you know, we're going to do this. So then, you know, I basically am told in some meeting that we're going to do this record and it's not going to be stacked with Roadrunner artists. There will be Roadrunner artists, of course. I mean, that's partly why they came to us was because Slipknot would be on it, you know, or, or another popular band. Um, but, you know, we then had to go. And I remember calling up, you know, I, we were having a hard time getting a major act from one of the, one of the major labels. And I call up, the head of the label basically and he's like why am i going to give you my single and i said well you know listen we're it, it's an mtv production i'm throwing out anything i can to try and say that we should help mtv out here yeah. uh but you know we think it's just gonna you know gain more exposure for the artist you know we're gonna do a job that they're not doing mm-hmm. you know people are still nobody's gonna not buy a system of a down record because mm-hmm. you know a system of down songs on one of these compilations and, and I don't think that was the band, but <laughs> that we were talking about, yeah, but, you know, so ultimately it was like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I think we can work this out, you know? So anyway, so we wind up doing these deals and it was just a licensing nightmare because, you know, it's the same work to license one song as it is to license an album. And all of a sudden we've got to license about 40 songs mm-hmm. and then see if we can get breaks from any of the publishers. 
And, you know, for the second disc, you know, we, maybe we can do some buyouts, you know, where then we don't have to have an ongoing, you know, uh, royalty, uh, you know, flow that then right. takes up part of your, your, your manpower. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but I, I do fondly recall those records because uh, I think that's where Monty, you know, uh, appreciated the work I did. And I, I don't know if it was he who dubbed me the closer, but <laughs> that's how I was thanked on the record. And that meant uh, at the time that meant a lot. Um, but yeah, then we did a second Headbangers Ball. We did a, another Return of the Rock. Uh, I don't know if we did two of those. Um but yeah, we had a good we had a good run with MTV, and I think it was you know it worked for both parties. Obviously, MTV was gonna you know take a share of the earnings that came in, so it was different mm-hmm. from you know a record where we were capturing everything. But it, you know, it helped. Look, it also helped solidify us as you know the metal label. This is the thing, isn't it? This is the thing. It's all about viability in mainstream markets and exposing the exposing, making sure that more people were seeing that little red candy bar logo. People that right. wouldn't normally I, be seeing it. You know, I, I'd say yes. Uh, there's a little bit of no in that too, though, because Case was never, as much as he wanted Roadrunner to grow, um, he never really cared about Roadrunner getting mentioned in a lot of places, to be honest with you. Okay. And you'll see when we were doing, when we'd have an artist perform on another band's album, you know, a singer or a guitar player would do a, a participate on a song, there's always a courtesy line. Right, that says courtesy of it would be like Roadrunner Records. Uh, okay, you'll see that a lot of ours say, you know, Dino Cazares appears courtesy of Fear Factory and Roadrunner Records, or it might just be the band. Like we were more, we cared more that the band got promoted than the label. Okay, and, and I know that may seem opposite to some things you've heard, but I mean, Caso I said band sell records, and yeah. yes, Roadrunner became a brand for sure. Yeah. You know, and you'd buy it because you knew it was on Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. But that was only a product of the bands being built up. Yeah. You know, if they're if the bands weren't as big and popular as they were, then nobody would give a shit about the red label. Mm. You know? Yeah. So That's we, interesting. I don't think we can, you know, we should delude ourselves into thinking that we were more than we were either. I mean, it was always about the talent, the records, the songs, you know, ultimately. Can I throw a curveball question that might get edited out? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Did you have any hand or any visibility in shit? What is it? Is it Corey Taylor joining Velvet Revolver or joining Anthrax after Dan Nelson left? So uh, one I of believe, those things is I believe, I believe he sang with Anthrax. I don't think it was Velvet Revolver. Um, I could be wrong, but I don't remember that happening. Um, and with Anthrax, uh, I remember that happening... But I, I mean, as far as I, I don't, he didn't wind up doing an entire record, right? I think he just did perhaps a song or two or three. I, I'm not, I don't, I don't remember. I think, I think somewhere, somewhere between those two bands, when there was a singer vacancy, I think it might have been Anthrax. I think, I think he was slated to either join or do an album or something. And I think somewhere in ink on the internet, it says that Roadrunner blocked him from doing that. That might have been the case, mm. but if it was, I would think that Slipknot and their management were also on board. You know, yes. I mean, I think that we're ultimately looking at the prize here. And I mean, you know, we, I remember thinking that, you know, you have to be reminded like, you know, Slipknot is the important band here. Yeah. And if somebody wants to do something else, that's great. 
you know, and we're down for that and we can explore different, you know, different projects, mm-hmm. but it should be coming back to that, shouldn't it? And I don't think the people involved disagreed. So I, I don't know that it would have been, you know, just a, you know, a, a block from Roadrunner. Yeah, yeah. I think probably a classic internet thing of people is probably not as simple as it seems. Yeah, and I don't think it's, you know, and I think that even just once the once that idea gets fleshed out, I think everybody realizes like, what are you doing? You know, like what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're you're definitely sending mixed messages to your fans, and you know, what's your goal here? You know, I mean, yeah. if the goal is to you you want to continue with Slip not being, you know, the the monster that it was you know Mm. then maybe that's not the best thing to do you know but again i really i don't remember those conversations i do remember Mm. something about it happening you know but perhaps that all happened behind closed doors and it was just you know at the end of the day it was something else so if this stays in it's because i've read up after the fact and i've got my facts roughly straight and with what we've done here is we've expanded on that point and sort of like come to a very reasonable conclusion. If I cut this, it's because I've got it wrong. <laughs> and it's okay. It makes no sense to actually explain. No worries. Cool. Cool. So no, but look, the same thing happened when Corey wanted to do Stone Sour, you know, or somebody wanted to do another project. Yeah. And, you know, it just wound up that those bands were going to be off the road for a while and they wanted mm-hmm. to keep busy and do something, you know. Uh, and Corey's obviously carved out an amazing career with Stone Sour too. You know, I mean, I, you can't see it, but I have a gold record over there <laughs> with his name on it. Um, you know, so I think that, uh, and obviously that was something that, you know, helped the label too. They were very successful records, you know. Is that, was the idea behind Mervyl Stone Sour? Um, there was Clowns Project. There was a few other projects. Was this just, because a few of these guys get imprints as well, don't they? Is this, Taking a fucking break. We're going to do these things to keep the, the, the PL sheets looking nice and healthy. Um, I, that's obviously going to be part of it, mm. but I think it was more, okay. If you're going to have a band off the road for two years, what are they going to do? Yeah. And do you want to, you know, set the stage to do things that will cause them to veer away from that? You know, I mean, if if you're not going to put out something by one of the band members, they're going to want to get it out somehow. Right. And ultimately, you're probably going to have to say yes. Yeah. And the last thing you would want would be for a band, you know, a band member to have a success on another record label. And then that, you know, that record label really doesn't want Slipknot to come back. You know, they'd want that band member's new band to continue. Um, Yeah. So I think that there was a lot of, you know, okay, it, it makes sense to try and keep things in house yeah. um, and be able to, you know, have the proper conversations throughout to make sure that everybody's still on the same page, you know, mm. and, you know, and, and then you, you gave these, these artists their outlets, you know, um, to my surprise was Clowns Project. Um, he had got an imprint. Um, I don't think the other, the other guys had imprints. They just, they released their projects. Um, but yeah, it was a way for them to, you know, to keep busy, you know, yeah. uh, and, and express themselves as they might not be able to, you know, like mm. Murder Dolls was not going to, you know, the Murder Dolls song was not going to be on a Slipknot album, you know, yeah. and neither was to my surprise, which was a lot more alternative leaning, you know, mm. so it gave them that outlet, um, you know, and I think it's important, you know, I mean, look, all those guys that we just, the, 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 the players we mentioned were important members, super important members of that band, mm. uh, truly gifted, 
you know, I mean, in, in different ways. And I think it was important to allow them to express themselves, you know, in other ways too, you know, just for them to feel their fulfillment, you know, not to sound corny, you know, but that's part of this. This is, you know, we're, you know, it's, I mean, it is art, you know, yeah, um, yeah. it's not just a commodity. We're not selling shoes, you know, um, and I think people need to be allowed to stretch out, you know, in order to then, you know, come back and do things, you know, even better, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think those, you know, I mean, Slipknot always came back and killed it, you know. So th- those projects had no ill effects, you know, on the music at all. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess, I guess it kind of, I, I, I guess I like to compound, compound on those. What I perceive as like breaks in the metabolism. Something new is happening. And what's the label's perspective? So that's why I kind of like to, to stress on that stuff. Um, just going into going back onto like the the slightly. Oh, how are you doing for time? By the way, I've nicked you for an hour. Oh, I'm good. Sweet. I'm good. I told everybody not to bother me for a while. So <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so we talked about uh, MTV. Um, have you got any memories of Spider Man? Have you got any memories of Hero? Have you got any memories of the soundtrack? Because that was like a three way joint venture wasn't it yeah and i tell you that the was whole OST. That, that was another uh, a great learning moment for me from case so mm-hmm. spider-man comes about uh and hero gets done with chad and joey from saliva uh both singing on the track uh some 41 had a song on it too um those are the main those are gonna be the video tracks and then um at one point i just remember case coming to me and he says Ray, uh, make sure we get singles rights. And I'm like, well, you know, we're technically not the ones putting out the record. You know, it's it's not even it's not even IDJ. I think it was Sony was the you know label releasing the record. Mm. He's like, no, no, we must have singles rights. And I'm like, okay. So I then get on the conference call and I'm like, okay. So one last thing, uh, we need to have the singles rights. <laughs> and like, what are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. What are you talking about? You know, and I'm like, well, you know, and I'm, yeah, I'm like, okay, what, what can I make up here that make, that's going to sound good? And I'm like, well, you know, look, we're Roadrunner. We don't have 10 Nickelbacks. Mm. Nickelback is our biggest selling band. We have to take care of this, you know, with in any way we can, we can't allow a single to be handled by a third party record company. It's just not going to fly, you know, well, you know, and, you know, ultimately they relented. I remember we had a, another conference call and I started going into my shtick again. And the person at IDJ said, Ray, they've agreed. You've got this. <laughs> and, and yeah, we got them. And it was great. I mean, Hero was a big song. Um, I'm sure we sold a ton of CD singles to somebody. Um, you know, I just, I just don't know who bought those, but you know, it was super popular. Um, and it was, uh, uh, and it was just another, you know, I don't know if anybody else would have said we need to get singles rights, Ray. You make, make sure we do that, you know. But Case knew the value of getting that, you know, at that time. And I think we might have been veering towards a digital age, and perhaps he even then knew that, you know, the power of one song that would get played a lot could mean something. You know, I'm not sure how much Hero gets played today, but you know, uh... it's definitely still <laughs> revered, especially yeah. in like this new age of of. Um... You know, like the whole Marvel experiment and things like that. I heard, I heard for the first time in a few years, um, Christ, what's it called? The, the one that was on the Avengers soundtrack, the Soundgarden song. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it was something like, um, 
And the um, sun we will live to live to rise. That's it. Live to rise. Yeah. I have to sing it. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> and just just to let you know, unfinished business happens everywhere. We just finished a producer deal for that song. <laughs> <laughs> a producer popped up and said, you know, we never did the paper on this. And so yeah, there I am, back to my beginnings at Roadrunner, cleaning up years old messes. But wow. There you go. That's awesome. Um, okay, let's, I'm going to actually go back to the question just I prepped. <laughs> After we've just gone off for like um, 30 minutes. Thinking about the macro of Roadrunner when you joined, so when you're joining in 99, um, the arcade takeover is going on. Um, this is kind of looked back on now as like, this was a funny move. This was a strange thing to do. Um, obviously, there's another side to that, which is like, it kind of makes sense at the time because there's a lot of real estate in, in arcade and there's a lot of viability in that model. So why not? If, especially if we're already... If we're already acquiring fucking gangster rap labels, let's let's just let's go into pop compilations as well. Why the fuck not? What's the perception on the New York side? Because I've heard Marcus talk about this at, at length, and um, and and uh, Paolo D'Alessandro. Um, obviously, this is all in hindsight. But what's the U.S. experience of this particular saga? I don't think I don't think it registered much here. You really? Know, it really wasn't going to impact our lives. You know, we were doing what we were doing. You know, I think that we felt that we were the main A&R source for the label. Mm -hmm. And this was something Case was doing. And, you know, I don't know how much it filtered down to a lot of other people either. You know, I think that, you know, the some of the top level execs knew, you know, I knew that this was happening. And I was probably helping put together some of the, you know, paperwork to get the thing done. Um, but, you know, like, I don't think the head of radio promo cared, you know, uh, or the head of marketing or the product manager for Slipknot, mm. you know, it's not going to care what's going on. It's just like, okay, Case is doing Case things somewhere. <laughs> and, you know, there you go. We're going to own something, you know. And I do remember there was actually a store about three blocks away from our office called Arcade America and large, you know, and every time I pass by people, are like, is that, that going to be the new office, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I had forgotten about that. And I remember Saturday mentioned it in his discussion, the the rack RAC, um, and I remember that coming down the pike, but yeah, I have a very short memory of that. So I, yeah. you know, it came and it didn't really affect our lives in the U S. So as we, as we go down the chain of causation that, that, you know, the Edel stuff and things like that, one thing Marcus mentioned, I'm going to use this soundbite to, to present this question, which is if, if you ask people today, were you aware just how close Roadrunner was, was to becoming <laughs> just completely falling over completely? Um, what would, were you aware? Of how close that came i was and i think there was probably only four or five people in the u.s office who knew well i shouldn't say i should say i can't say that the people in charge of departments didn't know mm -hmm. you know they probably did uh but it did not filter down we you know it was not something you wanted to get around obviously sure. um and i'll tell you though when that happened um i remember doug calling some, some of us were, i think we were called into the conference room and told what was going on. And Dave Rath, who, you know, was, was heading up the A&R department at that time and was really in charge of, you know, getting all the payments done, you know, the admin. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay, we are going to pay every artist, every dime they're owed. Like, we're not going to skimp on that. You know, we're not going to cut anybody out and we're going to pay every employee. You know, we didn't, we didn't let anybody go. And um, we were not going to, you know, there's other companies where, you know, even I, I mean, I know somebody who was at a made, the major label recently and they were you know a year later arguing about their bonus you know and it was <laughs> but it was like no we're going to pay the bands we're going to pay the employees 
And then I was told, don't pay anybody else. And basically, right. we had to find ways to put people off. I think it was three months. Um, and first it was, okay, ignore the phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like, okay, we'll get back to you. And there was something else. And, you know, we'd push things off. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, I, I mean, you know, I remember Dave Rath definitely having, you know, a harder time of it because people were breathing down his neck to get paid. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny, there was actually, there was actually the idea of having a Roadrunner book written while this was going on. Uh, and I think Case okayed exploring this and we actually <laughs> hired somebody who used to write, I think for, I had something to do with MTV, but we hired someone and they put together like a chapter or two or three. Mm -hmm. And part of this was in the chapter. And I think Case was presented with it. He said, are you fucking crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, all of our bands will leave. What are you talking about? You know, it was like, so that was not to be discussed. And I think at this point in time, enough people have said something that this can be, can be known. But yeah, it was, and it was just, you know, I, I don't know what happened with Adele. Um, but I do remember like earlier in my career, I worked with, um, with this little punk label and we were affiliated. We did some business with Epitaph. Mm -hmm. And the offspring had their massive record yeah. and every one of their partners around the world decided that they were geniuses and they were the reason why the offspring was successful in Brazil or wherever it might be. And all these companies were buying buildings because they were going to grow their massive operations. And then a year later, there was no other offspring record and it all went downhill. And I don't know if there was something to that with Adel. I don't know what the reason, I don't know what the cause was of their issues. Um, but I yeah, think, yeah. I think it, from what I can gather, I need to do some proper research on this, but it's, it's, I think it was an IPO and um, I think they're just, they're just devalued. Hmm. Um, okay. Were you part of the enclave then of people where, where the call came in saying we owe 10 million and we, need, we have 30 days? No. Yeah. <laughs> that you was just, you, you just knew something was going on. <laughs> no, I was just told that, you know, we, we're going to have some issues soon um, right. and we're going to be, you know, we're going to be tight with the money for a while, you know? Um, so I, I, I think, I, I don't think I wanted to know more than, <laughs> you know, no, fair enough. But, uh, but yeah, and that was, that was soon. I think that was early on in my career there. And I think Dave Rath had only been on the job for like a week or so, but when this whole thing came <laughs> down, so it was like, Oh, by the way, now that you're here, <laughs> yeah. enjoy your first task. <laughs> so let's talk about the universal deal then. Um, cause that's, that ends up being the saving grace. I was I'll tell you what was, I'll tell you what was funny when that came down and I was at the time, if, if we hadn't had to have sold then, or, you know, done the deal, because mm -hmm. there was the, in, the influx of money was necessitate, necessitated. I remember case saying, you know, if I'd waited six months, I could have made like 10 times as much on this sale. And it wasn't, you know, if I waited six months, I wouldn't sell the company. <laughs> So people who think that Nickelback would have saved the company, ah, maybe Case would have done the same thing anyway. Who knows? Yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah good point. Yeah. Um, what was what was it like in terms of the day to day afterwards? Can we know the, the sort of the feeling appears to be? And I want to put a nail in the co in the coffin on this particular section of my intrigue. Right? 
they wanted Nickelback and they wanted Slipknot and they wanted to do have involvement in the administration of those two acts and those two assets. The rest of it, Roadrunner, do your thing. You know exactly what you're doing. Was it like that? I think they wanted Slipknot. Yeah. That's all they knew they had. Mm-hmm. Nobody thought Nickelback, even though I think Nickelback was starting to break at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when they started talking about the deal, it was just Slip, you know, Slipknot was the biggest band on the label. And that's all that, that's all that mattered. Um, I don't think that IDJ had any idea that they were going to tell us how to do a Slipknot record, mm-hmm. you know, and how to market a record. You know, I think that, you know, I, I don't know that there was any grand connection, you know, between Case and Lior. Um, right. But, you know, the biohazard deal was something to hang your hat on, you know, which introduced one to the other. But it's not like I don't think Case had industry contacts like that, that he was in touch with throughout the years. You know, I think yeah. that it just became like, okay, we're going to need to do something. We got to find a partner. And then feelers were put out however they were put out. I don't know if they were from outside council. Mm. Um, but then it's, that's certainly one of the things that probably would have, you know, Lior would have known what Roadrunner was, you know, firsthand. Mm. And Case had, I think Case, you know, he liked Lior a lot. You know, I think that they got along really well. And that's, you know, that's really a big deal when it comes to who you're going to do deals with. Obviously, the dollars have to count. But, um, you know, when Lior left, you know, I mean, I, I'm to this day, I still don't understand why IDJ didn't buy the rest of Roadrunner when they had the chance, you know. <laughs> and I think that it was just L.A. Reed and Case didn't have the same vibe that he had with Lior, you know. And I think it was as simple as, simple as that, you know. Um, yeah. And perhaps they didn't feel that there would be future successes, you know, or they weren't guaranteed. I don't know. Um it was still surprising when that, you know, when yeah. that came about that, wait a second, Case is going to be able to buy the company back now, you know, and then it just made sense to go back to Lior. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, he came in again, you know, a, a second time. Uh, I think if, and you, you, I think you touched on something which was one of my many theories. Obviously, the advantage of having like 70 hours of interviews is you can track me forming thoughts in my head. And then the moment when I kill them because they're wrong. Um, <laughs> And one of those is um, me thinking that the biohazard deal was like the first domino that fell and that, that caused everything else. Cause that's where I keep thinking that Leo then was aware of Roadrunner and the viability of it as a brand in which I call it a love affair because I keep thinking that that's what he understood Roadrunner to be. And therefore it informed the deals going forward. And maybe as bollocks probably is, but can you tell me a bit more about Leo as a person? Because his role in, Roadrunner being bought out by these majors, uh, or at least having an investment in these major uh, by these majors, it kind of I, I feel like when he appears in my conversations, he's got this sort of like antagonistic tag, and I don't intend it to be so. So I'm going, I'm trying to ask people who knew him what he was like because he's obviously just a probably a normal dude. Well, I mean, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have a lot to say because I didn't travel in the same orbit as Lior. You know, right. um, I mean, obviously, brilliant businessman, the track record bears that out. Um, I think that, you know, he's, you know, it's one thing that you notice in the different coasts in the US. And, you know, Leo's a New York guy, you know, uh, and there's a certain grit that people have from New York mm-hmm. and, you know, rolling up their sleeves and, and doing some work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have much more to say. I mean, I do know that I was impressed, you know, Leor. See, I think somebody had told me this. Um, who worked? You know, he he will know everybody's name in a room if he's wow. having a meeting, mm-hmm. and and that's you know the highest level executive to the person who's lowest on the totem pole, 
And I think that's part of, maybe that's part of what also had an attraction to Road, you know, Case and Roadrunner working with him because, you know, we definitely had a very, <laughs> you know, family ethos at Roadrunner. Yeah. And, you know, I remember being at a meeting. I had to go to a board meeting to get approval on a deal at Warner. And, you know, Leo's like, hey, Ray, you know, blah, blah. It, it was, you know, it, it was totally informal. It gave you this confidence that you had him on your side, you know, and he knew who you were, you know, mm. and he understood and he was going to, you know, look, it was, it was an interesting time, but I don't know much more about him other than that, you know, so I'd be, I'd be like trying to, you know, I'd be blowing smoke up your ass if I no, it's cool. told you it, I knew something. It's, it, it adds color to something I've not got any color on. And I think it's important because there are no, there are no antagonists in this story, I don't think. And I think it's important to, to highlight that. Yeah, but um, I think that, look, I think when the deal happened, obviously anybody working at the company is going to wonder, what does this mean to our future? You know? And I think that for a long time, it meant nothing except that we had backup, you know, yeah. and we had different distribution, you know, we had some help doing other things. But, you know, we were still this metal label uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, I remember one time I had a, a business affairs, you know, a paralegal of sorts uh, who actually is working with me now again, after all these years, uh, Joan Bolvin used to sit next to me for a while uh, at the 902 office. And we were trying to like Nickelback was going to be on some Nickelback, some big some MTV special, right? Some big MTV appearance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought we had everything under control and, the people uptown kept calling and kept calling Joan and asking what was going on. And it was like, we've got it. You know? And then I remember saying like, give me the phone. <laughs> and it was Julie Greenwald was on the other end of the phone. And she's always, you know, she's been, you know, working with Lior for a long time. And at that time I was still, you know, um, the indie guy, metal guy. I didn't know who she was. You know, I was just like, listen, you know, we got this. It's all good. You know, we've, we've done the X, Y, and Z and they're going to appear. And it's all going to be fine. And, you know, that was a moment where, you know, she said, well, look, I just, I just need this to happen. Cause if not, you know, then Leo's going to come down on us, you know? And I mean, it was just, you know, he's going to hold people accountable, you know, mm -hmm. and that's kind of, you know, case would do the same thing, I guess. Um, but it was just funny that, okay, you know what, that taught me like, you know what, get shit done. Mm -hmm. Like if you can do something today, just do it, you mm -hmm. know? And it, there's nothing gained by letting a Nickelback appearance on MTV. That's super important sit for a day or two, you know, yeah. like push them to get it done quicker. Mm -hmm. you know and um but other than that i think you know the radio people or marketing people would have much more to say about day-to-day -day interactions you know as yeah. far as ba went island def jam basically had nothing to do with our business affairs mm -hmm. um i would talk to one of the business affairs directors occasionally um and maybe if we had a big deal that i don't even know what the big deal would be at this point in time i might have talked to him to let him know what was going on yeah um but, you know, they were really out of our lives, you know, so it was just, you know, we were doing our thing um, and everybody was happy because it was working, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. How do I go from here? I've got an idea where, where <laughs> I want to go from here, but I feel like, I feel like there's like, because we're obviously, we're on the trajectory of like, oh, wait, we'll talk about one and we'll talk about Atlantic, we'll talk about these bits. But I'm also like, this era of like the metal zeitgeist is like really important to me because I like, that's what I was raised in. Right, right. But I have nothing. I have no specific kind of like through line as to how we can interrogate the triviums and the kill switches of the world because I imagine for you it was kind of like business as usual. Um, yeah, I remember. Yeah. I, I do. I saw one of the discussions you had 
And I remember because, you know, like the A&R guys always like to build consensus, you know, because it always <laughs> helps their cause. Yeah. And I do remember, you know, and I had a, look, I, I don't think there's anybody at Roadrunner I didn't like, you know, and I would spend a lot of time with the A&R guys just hanging out. So at one point, Gitter called me into his office and he starts playing me different music. And I, I distinctly, I don't remember who it was, but I remember there was a, like a dubstep version of The Wizard from Black Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah. That was incredible, you know? And then that's the same place where he played me the Kill Switch record mm -hmm. uh, that was on Ferret. And I remember saying, well, why are you signing stuff like this, you know? And, you know, uh, now I've learned he had that conversation with other people. <laughs> and those other people probably meant more to him than Ray Garcia at BA. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you know, stuff comes from, you know, places you don't expect sometimes, you know, but yeah, it was, you know, Killswitch was an exciting band to have. I remember Trivium, they actually played one of our Roadrunner conventions. Um, right. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was an interesting night. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to leave it at that. <laughs> uh, you know, Roadrunner was work hard and play hard. Yeah. You know, and those conventions, there's a, not everybody drank, but those that did seem to do a really good job of it. <laughs> Have you got any Christmas pie stories? Um, that's that's not going to get you in trouble. <laughs> I don't think I have anything great to say. Uh, okay. The parties were legendary. Uh, to this day, when somebody brings it up on a social media account, people crawl out of the woodwork talking about how great they were. And, you know, it was interesting. When I started, we had, it was the last time we had it at the, at uh, the basement of CBGB's. Oh, wow. And the singer of the band I mentioned earlier, Toilet Boys, was DJ Miss Guy, uh, and she was DJing the, uh, the event. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, it was, you, would have, you would have surprising people show up sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, like I remember one of them, Peter Tork from the Monkees was there. And I have no idea why he was at our office party, but he was. <laughs> um, I remember when we signed Jerry Cantrell, he was going to be at the Christmas party. And then a ton of bands wanted to be there because, oh. you know, I mean, Allison Chains was huge to a lot of those bands. Even Nickelback, I remember, was like, oh, my God, Jerry Cantrell's going to be there. We got to go. Um, so any number of people like that. But it was just, uh, I mean, it was a great time. I mean, it was interesting because we'd have the, when we had the party in our office, this team catering company would come in and they would curtain off all of the cubicles. Right. So you basically just had this maze and occasionally there would be a bar, you know, <laughs> and it was packed. And for the longest time, you know, you could smoke and I mean, the place would just be, you know, music's blasting, you know, everything. I, I, I do remember somebody, maybe Kathy Merritt mentioning. And yes, I remember there was, you know, two people fucking in Case's office when I went to get a jacket or something. But that seemed to happen all the time. Um, yeah, they were just good times. <laughs> <laughs> Some things are just meant to remain sacred. So wait a second. Let me bring this up, though. Where after Roadrunner United, we had the Roadrunner United concert. Yes. I don't know if you know about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. That became our holiday party that year. And right. Okay. At one, point, at one point, we were going to sell tickets. We were going to try. And, uh, you know, boy, time passes. I don't remember if we wound up selling any tickets to the event. But I do remember that we had basically an, I don't know if there was a different section of it, but it was a rather large venue in Times Square. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, it was open bar. So it's like basically having a concert 
you know, with a few thousand people with an open bar. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember when Case was talking about it, saying like, Case, this is going to be like really expensive. And he said, Ray, 25th anniversary only happens once every 25 years. So, (laughs) you know, it was like, we're probably not going to be here the next time it rolls around. (laughs) And it was like, we can afford to spend on this one. And I just thought, you're looking back at it, that was so insane. And I do remember meeting I was with Monty and he was talking to Josh Silver from Typo Mm -hmm. and you know, the business affairs people always get a bad rap because people, you know, the, they think that, you know, we're, we're the ones who are screwing them somehow. Yeah. And I remember the case walking up and then Monty introduces me and Josh goes, Oh, Ray Garcia, I hate you. And case is like, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) He liked to have some friction uh, going on between parties from time to time too. Uh So anyway, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a great, it was, look, it was the most insane show. Uh, and for me, I mean, seeing kill switch at both singers on the same stage was incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just a great job. It was a great, you know, little tribute to Monty. Um, yeah, definitely, uh, an amazing, amazing show. You know? Yeah. It's all available on YouTube and it, it, everything regarding Rotary United, you could, it's, that warrants its own podcast series really there's there's so many different nodes to connect and the output of the the concert as well and um various ensuing shit shows it it, is worth an academic uh an academic exploration really um before we move into the warner years and like the the your atlantic years tell me about this this trip that marcus asked me to ask you about I have, South nothing, I have nothing to say about that trip. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you the, the reason for the trip was um, <laughs> there was an individual down there um, who I, I think I'll let remain nameless, sure. uh, who had purchased, I guess, Roadrunner Brazil. Uh, oh. And this guy had built up, uh, he had offices, distribution offices in Colombia, Argentina, maybe Chile. Brazil, Mexico, I think in Spain as well. And basically, I mean, South America, you talk about the wild, wild west. Mm. I mean, there were only the majors down there and there was hardly any uh, independent distribution, right? Mm -hmm. So this guy had built, it was like, okay, he's got a network, one-stop shopping. He's like the only game in town, unless you want to go to a major, Uh, but he owed us a ton of money. um, And we went down there basically to find a way to sue him. And Marcus and I were trying to see if he was in the country <laughs> and it was like a little bit of like, you know, James Bond sleuthing or something, private eye work, you know, we're, we're, you know, going into his office, trying to see if he's in the office and <laughs> calling up and trying to psych him out. And, uh, we never found him. There was a lawsuit. I'm not sure how it wound up though, but, um, yeah, it was a fun trip though, for sure. <laughs> and it was great because actually the Ian Flint, who was the CFO of the company, comes into my office. And he's like, oh, you should talk to Marcus. He's going to South America to deal with this situation. Um, and uh, yeah, you should just touch base with him. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, wait, well, who's he going to meet with? You know, and then not only were we, were they going for that reason, Wally, who is international, was going to present Roadrunner to the Warner labels, right? So mm-hmm. it was dual purpose. So one of the people Wally was meeting with, who was the head of the Warner office in Chile, had been my wedding party 
like four years earlier. And I'm like, well, how am I not going to be there? You know? So I walk over to Case's office and he's like, I forgot that you worked in South America. Cause I, I worked for a year for BMG Chile. Right. right. Okay. So he's like, you must go. So by the time I got back to my desk, there was already an email, like get Ray on the plane, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, so I wound up going on this trip and it was, you know, it was like a case kind of trip. It was go to Sao Paulo one day, go to Rio one day, go to Buenos Aires one day, go here one day. And it was, you know, just your head is spinning, you know? Yeah. Oh, wait, yeah. let me tell you. I know that uh, people have mentioned cases being in New York every two weeks. Okay. Obviously true. Mm -hmm. But I do remember one instance where he went from Japan to LA, to New York, to London, to the Netherlands within a week. <laughs> and it's just, you know, I mean, geez, you know, I, I go on a two hour car ride and I'm, I've had it. So I, yeah. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did it. That's mad. That's absolutely insane. Did you have any deals with um, with Japan? Um, every once in a while, there would be some kind of BA issue that went on. Um, you know, I mean, typically we'd have to get bonus tracks, I think. Um, but, you know, it's funny. Like, I came from, I had actually worked for a while at a little indie distributor um, that kind of prepared me for Roadrunner because I wound up, there wound up being a Dutch office. Um, that was trying to set up these offices in various territories. Mm -hmm. So they had us one in Spain, one in Germany, one in Italy, one in the Netherlands, one in the U.S. Um, and I think that you know that kind of helped me understand certain things. Like I was dealing with these people, and, you know, and obviously, you know, even simple things like knowing what the Dutch holidays were, you know, and mm. when people would or wouldn't be in the office, or you know, things to talk about. Um, but yeah, Japan, I didn't have that much, but I do remember on one of those Roadrunner conventions, we, um, it was my daughter was having her first communion, I think, okay. um, on a Sunday. And these conventions went from Friday and you'd come home Sunday night. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I got to be home Sunday. Like, I'll go earlier, but I got to find a way to get home. Mm -hmm. And they're like, we'll figure it out. And then I wound up sharing a car and what was probably like a four or five hour car ride with Shushka who's the head of the Japanese office who spoke a little more English than I spoke Japanese, which is nothing. <laughs> uh, but it was, I mean, but it was killer. Cause you know, we were both music fans mm -hmm. and we were talking about, you know, eighties metal bands like loudness and these pop bands that the guitar player was in before. <laughs> and, you know, somehow we managed to kill those hours. Yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't have, there, there's not much else to tell. <laughs> unfortunately. No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, Shushka wouldn't, he won't appear on camera, unfortunately. Interesting. But I have, I mean, I am in touch with him, which is pretty cool. Okay, cool. Um, okay, let's, let's, let's bring this, this train into the station with, uh, uh, by the way, I appreciate you watching enough previous conversations to sort of have an understanding of how, of my own immature understanding, because it does help me sort of like fill out the, um, the context of these things. Um, I have to. I have to send you an email with some corrections. Of <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I get. I get them all the time, um, which is fine. If if something's so grievous, I'll make sure that it's like noted um, somewhere so people can see it. But you know, nature of the beast with this low stakes YouTube. Sure, game. sure. Um, so, why does it take one or four years? I'm speaking 2006 to 2010 to start make before they start making any substantial changes. Well, I think that what happened was, I mean, when 2010 came around, that's when we became fully owned. Yes. 
And that was prior to the trigger event, which I believe would have been the year after. And what happened was, I think Case just didn't want to have to play by other people's rules anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like he had, you know, that we operated fairly freely, but then there were things that came in, you know, when you're doing certain deals, you had to get certain approvals. And, you know, I, I think if you spent more than $250,000 on a deal, you had to get Warner approval. Right. You know? Okay. Um, and I think that Case had it when there's an artist that had a pretty rich deal, always made us money, you know, but, you know, Warner's in it for the big, the big score, you know, and if they're going to spend them, you know, let's say a million dollars to use a number on an artist, mm-hmm. they want it to blow up. You know, they want the next Bruno Mars. You know, they don't want to have just this uh, legacy act mm-hmm. that is doing, you know, regular constant business. Now, Roadrunner case always wanted to find, you know, like the next Slipknot, the next typo, whatever. You know, he was always looking to break something. Yes. But we always had other material that was kind of like, you know, if you had a portfolio of stocks and these were the consistent ones like IBM, and then you took your chances with other stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he had an artist that, you know, they had, they'd been around for over 10 years. Everybody knew that they were going to continue to do the business they're doing. Mm-hmm. And he was getting a hard time about it. And I think that that ultimately was where he just said, you know what? Okay. You know, I'm, I'm done. Really? And then that's when I, I think that's what made him decide to sell. You know, he just was like, you know what, this, I know you tell you don't you you don't think I know how to do business, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think that's really what happened, and that's when then uh, they took over and it became fully owned by Warner. Mm-hmm. And then once you're fully owned, then you have no choice but to operate as a Warner company does, you know. And we we used to have an outside lawyer who would do some of the day to day back and forth on deals for us. Mm-hmm. And Warner Bay said we don't have outside lawyers, you know. So you right. got to do it, Ray. Um, if you need help, we can have somebody else here do it too, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so that's when changes happened, obviously, you know? And then soon after that, you know, there were a lot less Roadrunner employees. We moved uptown. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to be one of the ones that, you know, moved uptown. Uh, and it was different then because I was still doing all the Roadrunner work, but I was also doing other work. You know, right. uh, at that point, I wasn't a Roadrunner attorney anymore. Then, I technically I was Atlantic. I was senior VP of Atlantic, and you know, it was great. I learned a lot there too because throughout my entire career, I'd never worked at a you know, uh, I don't want to say formal, mm-hmm. but you know, I'd always worked at indie companies and basically had to figure everything out for myself, or as you know, Kay said, hire somebody, learn, <laughs> and then yeah. do it yourself. So it was interesting to be in that setting, you know, but it was different, you know, I mean, I, I no longer was I, you know, directly discussing deals with the guy who made all the calls. I actually think you're the first person I've spoken to who worked in post Red Wedding Roadrunner. So this story tends to end with a lot of people saying, you know, Roadrunner is still doing some great stuff, but it's not the same as it was. No hard feelings. This is how the world ends up oh, sometimes, blah, 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 blah. Go listen to Code Orange because they're shit hot. Right. You know, that's kind of how the story ends. What's your take on that, having lived both lives? I mean, I think that you still had a dedicated crew, you know, who was still carrying the Roadrunner flag. Um, you know, I think I myself, you know, but Dave Rath was on the front lines of that, mm-hmm. you know, wanting Roadrunner to still be what it was. You know, Mark Abramson was still there for a while. Um, you know, Chris Brown, Susie Accuse. Um 
Mike Ligori, you know, who's an A&R admin. Uh, those people were still there. They still loved what Roadrunner meant. Um, you know, we still had the artists um, that mattered, you know, that we, you know, that, that we brought with us. <clears throat> I mean, you know, they finally, look, they, they got Gojira to a certain level last time out and this time, uh, which is incredible. Yep. You know, I mean, so that's like, and that was yeah, one of my favorite signings um, and love that band that I'm so happy they've reached, you know, the, the point that they did. Mm-hmm. But so that shows that there's, you know, there was still some juice there, you know, the Roadrunner could still do Roadrunner stuff. Obviously now it's, it's just very different because there's less people there. Um, and I guess, you know, and they're trying to do different things to stay relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for those few years, you know, we were still doing what we were doing. You know, we had a number one Slipknot record come out, yep. uh, which was tremendous. Um, you know, we had the kill switches, you know, we had other artists that were still, that everybody still, uh, not that people don't care now, obviously everybody still cares. And I think anytime you're at a record company, you know, the people working there really do give as much of themselves as they can to the artists, you know, and that's true, whether it's Roadrunner or it's Atlantic or it's Epitaph or you know, Century Media, whatever, you know, like those mm-hmm. people, you know, I always say the music business was built on young people who wanted to be next to the <laughs> next to the bands mm-hmm. and enjoyed getting the tickets and weren't necessarily always compensated great. Um, but it's, you know, a young person's game in a lot of ways. So yeah. anyway, I, th- I think that it was just um, difficult because some artists would start, you know, options would not get exercised, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, we lost some bands that, you know, people thought would have been with us forever. Yeah. You know? Even like devil driver, you know, like Des Fafara had been with Roadrunner for so long, you know, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's a shame that it didn't continue then. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it, you know, it was Roadrunner before that time was a certain thing. And then we were, you know, we were in a different, ballpark yeah yeah. we're doing something different and it could never be what it was Mm. um and it doesn't mean that some of the stuff that happened there wasn't just as great you know what i mean and before i left was when they were just looking to sign code orange um yeah uh code orange and then i mean you know fantastic band you know um and then they've gotten some other younger bands that are also killer you know so it was just you know um it couldn't last forever. No. <laughs> so, so it wound up just going the way it went, you know, but it was funny, you know, when, when I was being in business affairs, a lot of times people think, you know, more about what's going on in the background. Mm-hmm. And I remember when, when Mark Abramson was let go, that happened on a Friday. I had taken that day off. Now, Mark's a friend of mine. You know, we actually were part of a group. We would go on road trips um, to see hockey games in other states and other countries. Right. <laughs> There's a, a group of us, which included some other ex-Roadrunner people. Mm-hmm. And I, I get to work on Monday and they're like, oh, yeah, Abramson's not here anymore. You know, and I'm like, I call him up and he's like, oh, I thought you knew. And I'm like, but they, I may be the lawyer, but I'm not that heartless. Like, you're my friend. What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> and um, so, you know, interesting, you know, you get voted radio promo guy of the year by the biggest periodical and then you don't have a job anymore so it's yeah. a weird business yeah, yeah. very strange yeah. very strange so, right so, so and have i missed anything are there any stories that you had backed up in your um in your hard drive there that uh, i haven't sort of like i haven't skirted through or skirted past well yeah it's uh 
There's always, the, the answer's always, of course there is, but nothing's coming to mind. All yeah, time. but you know what? Being the lawyer at the company, my stories are a little different. <laughs> and it's not the same as being like, you know, on a tour bus with a band or something. Oh, yeah. Fuck uh, that. I, that, dude, that's my background. I'm like, I'm much more into that stuff. Well, I'm going to tell you, though, one of the funniest things that happened, uh, Deicide was doing their last record for Roadrunner. Uh, it was probably their eighth. I think it was one of those deals <laughs> that ran very long. So we get this artwork and it's, we get these printouts and I get called into the art department and like the inner fold out, you know, of the jewel box, it's like Jesus Christ on a table. And there's, I can't remember, it's like the Virgin Mary's head and a bunch of snakes are coming out of his crotch. <laughs> and there was something as, you know, um, repulsive on the front cover and people are like, can we put this out? And like, will they even print this at the printing? And I'm like, hey, well, you know, I got to do some research on this. Not sure, you know. And for two days, the company, including the president of the company, like everybody is like, what the fuck are we going to do? Like, can we even put this out? This is crazy. I don't know. What do we do? And then Glenn Benton, I think, calls up Monty. And Monty mentions it. He's like, oh, you guys thought that was the real artwork? And he's just cracking up. And he just sent this, this bogus artwork to fuck with us after all these years. So That's good. Um, Go on, Glenn. Yeah, what, what else? Uh, what else would I have for you? Now, I, I don't know if there's any. I'm trying to see if any of the notes I had. Um, I mean, there's some things that are more, uh, that aren't funny stories, you know. But, I mean, there was one... Uh, I remember it Slipknot, I think it was for Iowa. They wanted to have this special casing that would include live maggots in the spine of the CD box. <laughs> now, we were all wondering how they would stay alive <laughs> in the CD box, but obviously that wasn't going to work. Mm. And then, you know, they, they wanted this <laughs> really crazy packaging that involved tin foil or something. And you know, record contracts are written a certain way. And if product is prepared out of standards, there's extra cost. So at one point I had to have a conversation with Clown. I think it was Clown to, to explain to him that for every CD they would sell, they would owe us a quarter because the packaging was so expensive. Yeah. And he didn't seem to Not care. sound cheap, man. No, no. But we wound up finding a middle ground that was really cool. And, uh, you know, they didn't wind up paying an arm and a leg for everything. <laughs> um, but that was another weird one there. Um, you know, oh, one of my favorite stories, <laughs> which was uh, Case could be brutal at times, especially in the A&R meetings. Mm -hmm. And I think Gitter had a band. Uh, and I think he made the mistake of saying, this is the craziest crowd I've ever seen for a band. And then Case from, I wasn't there, so this is hearsay, but. He just said, oh, really? I was at Black Flag in Berlin in 1983 when they tore the toilets out and threw them all on stage. Was it that crazy? <laughs> and he was like, okay, it wasn't that crazy. <laughs> but like Case was a music guy, you know, and he had those kind of experiences. And he would talk the talk, you know, and walk the walk, you know. And, you know, he was – I remember when we tried to sign the Dresden Dolls, who, again, were, you know, left-turn kind of band for Roadrunner, yeah. right? Um, and Case went to meet with uh, the band, which is Amanda Palmer and the drummer, whose name I forget now, unfortunately, he was an insanely good drummer. Um, 
and I think Jonas Naxon as well, and probably the A&R guy, was Dave Basin. Mm-hmm. They went to Boston or wherever they were. And like, I just remember them saying, like, Case just killed it. Like, he just knew everything to say, was on the same page with the artist. You know, they were unrolling, I mean, um, developing a marketing plan where there would be a video for every song. And it was just like, it was like masterful, you know? And I, I think, you know, and, and Case wasn't bullshitting, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it was, uh, you know, and he closed a deal. You know, we wound up releasing the first record, uh, I, I think, under another another label name, um, mm-hmm. you know, because it was like, wow, Roadrunner would be a little weird releasing this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, just interesting. You know, he just um, interesting guy. And uh, like Case I said, you know, well. very, you know, between Case, Ian Flint, who is an amazing finance person, you know, uh, he would develop all these flow charts, you know, and mm-hmm. and I'd be like okay whatever <laughs> what's the bottom line okay great you know i'm not a numbers guy i'm a lawyer you know i deal with words yeah. and then with doug you know doug keogh who you know you may or may not wind up talking to i mean he would obviously i think he'd be one of the people that would have the full story because he was there for almost the entire ride yeah. um but i remember one time um doug wasn't a lawyer although i think his family was judges uh but he <laughs> he told me i said well look the contract says this and he's like i don't care what the contract says and he's like, we're going to do what's right. And there were many times where, you know, we didn't take all these deductions and reductions that you could for an artist because mm-hmm. it's like he just didn't think it was, you know, it was just ridiculous. You know, mm-hmm. some of the some of the stuff record companies put in contracts look good on paper, but it winds up coming up with a result that is so unfair, you know. Yeah. And I and he was very, you know, I, whenever people came asking for money, they didn't always get a yes. Mm-hmm. And so I think some people obviously weren't that happy all the time. But I consider him like one of the most ethical people I've ever met, period. Not even in this business, you know, especially yeah. in our business, you know. And so being able to work with those guys and, you know, grow up with them was just incredible. You know, great yeah. learning experience. Um, I got I got another story, um, if you want to hear it. Oh, yeah. Keep, dude, uh, keep going. Grunt Truck. I remember Grunt Truck being oh, discussed. I forgot. I forgot to ask you about this one. Well, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't oh, yeah. have anything course, to do with. Of course, this was after your time. That's why. I, that's why I didn't add it in. That's fine. I'm not. I didn't have. I didn't have anything to do with the disputes that went on. Yeah. But I remember because I, I found out after the fact, and we were dealing with it. So at some point, you know, they had a, a brilliant lawyer um, who used the strategy, and I mean that seriously, not sarcastically. Yeah. Um, but he had this strategy of having the band declare bankruptcy to get out of their deal. Which like yes. Natalie Cole did, you know. What I mean, like major artists did this. It did not work out for this band. All right, I don't know what happened, but it took years. The band wound up disintegrating, I guess, over mm-hmm. all this. But what I do remember is years later, we're in a management meeting, and there's a letter, and it's basically the bankruptcy court, and it seems that one of the, you know, principal, one of the guys in the band, the, maybe it might be one of the only people. There might be one or two only left, but. Mm-hmm. One of the people left in the band um, had come into some money because of uh, an inheritance. And they were asking us to put in a claim, you know, for our share. And I remember Case saying, like, I don't want to do that. He's like, this guy's been through enough. You know, yeah. like, he's like, can't we just say no? <laughs> and then I said, well, we can. But if you say no, that just means that, you know, the IRS or AT&T or whoever the hell else he owes money to is just going to take all the money. Yeah. And so I think we probably put the claim in. I don't know if we ever received any money. If we did, 
I think we would have wanted to have just sent it to the guy, you know, yeah. because uh, like I said, case was just, he just thought it was wrong to be going that far. It's like, you know, it's water under the bridge at this point and nobody bands never pay you back. <laughs> That's not part of the deal. You know? mm. It's a business and okay. You lose some, you win some. Um, but I remember him feeling, you know, bad about that, you know? And then it was yeah. like, okay, well, we got to figure out a way to handle this. You know, I think the context around the dispute, if I remember rightly, there's like three different chapters of bankruptcy, one of which absolves you of all your debts. Mm-hmm. And, um, Gruntruck and did, terminates your contracts and terminates the contracts. What we're going to do, and I think uh, they were in deep with Roadrunner because obviously your label is a bank; it's not a record label. It's it's okay. it's um, they're in deep to the flavor about a million, and there's also a clause in a contract somewhere. Might, I don't think it's law. I think it was just in the Roadrunner contract saying you know you can't be poached by another label um, while this uh, debt is active. Or something to that effect, and there was rumors that Polygram were going to snap up Gruntruck, hmm. um, and that's what triggered the the lawsuit, which was well, they can't declare bankruptcy knowing that there's an interest from a third party because they're just dumping the debts, then going somewhere else to you know therefore be a viable product. And I think that's where it all comes from. Um, just an example of of. Roadrunner creating judicial precedent, which I quite, which I'm, I'm impressed by as, <laughs> as someone with that background. <laughs> yeah, I think if, look, if somebody really was not happy at Roadrunner um, and it got to be a problem, oftentimes Case wouldn't want them around anyway. Yeah. You know, it didn't happen that often. And obviously a lot of bands probably would have liked to have gotten off the label at certain points in time, you know, when somebody mm-hmm. else came calling. Um, but I mean, I remember, you know, Glassjaw being a band that, you know, phenomenal first record ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think, you know, I think the the label was thinking that maybe they should have somebody else produce the next record instead of Ross Robinson, just to try something different. The band would have nothing, you know, it was like, he was like, you know, the fifth Beatle. It was like, no way, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so then we wound up doing a deal to let them go to, they went to Atlantic actually of all places, you know? Yeah. And there was a deal cut, you know, where there's a little royalty comes back to the, you know, to Roadrunner, um, but that wasn't the first time. I mean, I think that, you know, part of the problem is when you're in early, you know, then somebody gets successful, then other people come calling. So, yeah. um, you know, I think that it might've been with Gitter's discussion. You guys touched on uh, Ross Robinson's deal for I am recordings. Yes. I, t- I try and unpack a little bit of what, how these imprints work. Um, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't there when the deal was done. No, sure. But, sure. But I think it was just, okay. Ross's, you know, we realize he's a special producer, you know, and we'd love to work with him and labels are always looking for angles to bring in talent. And it was like, okay, well, if Ross has his own deal, he brings bands to us or he works with, you know, it's a calling card, obviously the people will want to work with him, you know? So I think he did, didn't he do the burning red by machine head? Um, I believe so. Yeah. And then he had super success, obviously with corn, and some other artists. And then I think one of the majors came after him. And it was, again, it was like, you know what, at this point in time, it doesn't make sense for us to try and fight this, you know? Mm. And we worked out a deal with, I think it was universal, you know, and there was like a deal cut, you know? So, uh, you know, part of that is, you know, we were in first, you know, and, and helped get something going. Um, And then, you know, then, then other people came calling and it wasn't always the case. I mean, I saw Dino's, Dino's discussion that, one of the major labels was after them after they were signed to Roadrunner, uh, which I didn't know. You know, I wasn't around for that either. 
but you know, it doesn't surprise me that Case wasn't going to let a band go just because somebody else, you know, decided they wanted to sign him. Yeah, yeah. So, um, hmm. Oh, yeah. I got more. Do you have you have more time? I forgot. I've got I've got all the time in the world as long as as long as I am conscious. Okay, one one last thing then, and it has to do with uh, the business side of things, right? So, <laughs> there were these different things I would learn along the way that Case had done that I had no idea were happening, you know? Um, and one of them was, you know, he had actually helped uh, provide some seed money for one of the major magazines that came out during the, I guess it was the nine, no, the 2000s. Okay. And, and I was thinking like, oh, well, that was a great business move. So, you know, so he owns part of it. And I thought, no, no, no. He just gave them the money because he knew that in order for his business to thrive, he needs to have media to cover it. And like, what better way than having a major publication at that time, you know? Yeah. But there was that. And then there was also uh, the Roadrunner website. Um, I think we were with, I think it was while we were with IDJ. Um, at some point, I find out that the Roadrunner website is the most visited music website in the world. Right. And I'm like, how, what do you mean? Like MTV isn't or one of the majors? And it was true. And I had no idea how this happened. And then later on, I learned that, oh, well, you know, we were housing the Blabbermouth site and we were right. hosting and we were hosting, I want to say metal injection. And I hope I don't get that wrong, but there were other sites we were hosting. And it, I'm under the impression that we were getting the credit for the traffic. So again, you know, I don't know if this was Case's master plan, but Hosting these other sites helped drive traffic, which just built the machine bigger. You know, Blabbermouth is a is an, 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 an that's a massive part of metal history in general. I was hoping to like at one point try and dissect that a bit, but I think the extent of the relationship between Blabbermouth and Roadrunner is Borovoy is Monty's friend, and there, there's right. been like a, there's been a relationship <laughs> there for a long time, um, and it was just hosted. It was just on the infrastructure to help out, you know, and, and as you say, perhaps drive traffic. Um, but yeah, I think there's nothing more to dissect further than that, really. Yeah, I remember one point there was discussion to try and invest further. Um, and then I think I think at that time we were with one of the majors and, you know, they're they don't just do things for, you know, out of the kindness of their heart. You know, they want to have the option to buy something a few years later and that was never going to be part of the deal and um i was trying to pitch it to them that this was really more of a marketing exercise for us yeah. that you know blabbermouth would help the label but yeah. they didn't buy it and uh you know we didn't wind up doing any kind of deal i guess with yeah. boy um so fair enough fair enough all right well i think I'm, I'm looking over my notes and i think i don't think i have anything outstanding so no, that's um, cool. Let's let's close out with the last question, which is describe your worst day at Roadrunner and then your best day at Roadrunner. I'd say the worst day was I, I guess what you call the red wedding. Uh I, I refer to it as the Great Purge. Uh, <laughs> it was the red wedding. I remember, <laughs> I remember walking into my office and it was funny because we had a uh, 902 Broadway was a main room that was all open, kind of like an old newsroom. Like you'd see on TV, right? Yeah, yeah. Low cubicles. Everybody could talk to everybody. Hmm. And then there were a few people in offices and the A&R guys had their own little back cave where they, where they were housed. So um, at one point, though, 
I got an office. And then I wound up, they wound up bringing in an A&R guy who needed a space. So he took, what, long story short, I'm in the back where Blue Grape used to be housed, right? Okay. And right by the kitchen area. Um, so I'm in this room and then uh, I guess it was Warner. So the HR people used to take over the office next to us, right? And usually it was stuff like, okay, we're going to sign you up for your health insurance, you know, whatever. So I come into the office and I just walk in and I see that it's, um, I think it was Ron Berman was sitting in there with one of the HR guys, door closed, mm -hmm. go to my office, get my coffee. And all of a sudden I hear the walls were thin as, you know, like paper thin. Okay. And I hear the magic word Cobra, which in America is an ongoing medical insurance plan that was instituted. It stands for something I can't. Okay. All right. You know, and, um, and I'm like, Cobra, I'm like, oh, shit, like something's going down here. Uh, and then I get a call from the president of the label on my cell phone because he didn't think I was in the office that day, but right. I came a little late. Right. So anyway, so I pick up, I'm like, no, I'm in the office. He's like, oh, get Joan, who's my paralegal mm -hmm. and come to my office. And he goes, you're safe. And I'm like, okay, I go get Joan. We go to the office. And then I learn like, okay, a lot of shit's going to go down today, Ray. And he wouldn't tell me who, but like, right. you know, people are being let go, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, now it's like, okay, your worst nightmare mm. when you get bought by a major label. And you're, I'm like, you know, going back to my office, I pass by the window and Monty's in there. And I remember saying like, Monty too? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? And so, yeah, that was like the worst day. Um, wow. You know, because it was just, you know, you knew, you know, what it was wasn't going to be it anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And then best day, I don't know. I mean, a holiday party, um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Oh, I'll tell you a good one. I went to see, we went to see Opeth. Uh, I think Ghost was warming up. And I wound up hanging out with Michael Ackerfeld, Monty backstage mm. for hours after the show. At one point, I think I wanted to leave and it was like 2 a.m. And Michael was like, you can't leave now. And we're playing metal trivia, which Monty is killing me at, unless it was a hair metal band. And, uh, you know, I'm just drinking wine with Ackerfeld and he's telling me and Monty, we should go to his house for a barbecue like the next time we're in Sweden. I'm like, okay, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> So that was in our, I think we were courting ghost at the time. You didn't ask me if I'd seen a ghost. Uh, yeah, so, dude, do you know what fucking happened? <laughs> do you know what fucking happened? I, I heard a disembodied voice call my name in my kitchen. <laughs> so I stopped asking. I'm not messing around. I'm not fucking kidding you at all. I'm not kidding you at all that's what happened in my kitchen i think it was like not long after i, I might even been thinking about ah oh, it'd be cool to get some some answers to that question and then it then that happened i was like maybe i should leave the beyond alone but <laughs> <laughs> i'm happy to hear a ghost story if you got a ghost story no the only one i have is the band ghost so we were oh, after them uh <laughs> big time uh i think dave rath had pegged them to be like the band he had to have hmm. uh and you know Two records later, he would have been proven right. I mean, yeah. they were massive here uh, and still are, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we fell a little short. Um, so anyway. Yeah. That, that'll be it, voice. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you my favorite Doug story. It has nothing to do with Roadrunner. Cool. 
So he was working for a world music label before Roadrunner. Right? Yes. And so all of a sudden, I guess he's in the office and his boss tells him that Ginger Baker from Cream is yeah. in the waiting room. And he has a flight at you know LaGuardia Airport there in Manhattan. He's got a flight in an hour or mm-hmm. something. He's like, and we need to sign him to a contract. Okay. And you know, this is like 1960 something, right? Or 70 something early. Mm-hmm. So there's no computers, you know, where you do a contract from scratch. So Doug, being as industrious as he is, goes to the file cabinet, <laughs> takes out a contract, whites out the name, <laughs> writes in Ginger Baker. Might have had to wait it out a number or two, you know, dollar figure, and that's the contract. So, one of my uh, favorite stories. Like, who needs lawyers, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, at one point we signed the New York Dolls, right? Yes. That was late in the in the game, <clears throat> and basically that was, I think, the one time that it wasn't a business decision. I think Case described it as, you know, there's that girl in high school you never got to date that you wanted to date. And he's like, I want to put out a New York Dolls record. So we did, you know, and it was a little different. It was more, I thought it was a little more Stonesy than the New York Dollsy, yeah. uh, but a fun record. But the bass player, Sammy Yaffa, used to be in Hanoi Rocks. Mm-hmm. He actually worked at Roadrunner for a day. He was working with Nelson in the mail room for one day called in sick the next day and then never showed up again and i said well that's rock and roll like tammy yaffa doesn't need to be working at a record company he's a rock star you know so that's awesome dude this has been really good though